Hello, and welcome to season three of our Parallel Paths, a future for my loved one with a disability and for me. I'm your host, Jerry, Dr. Geraldine Arango-Dealey, and this podcast is about just what the title says, the parallel paths of family members, certainly parents, sometimes siblings as parents age or pass on, other caregivers, and their loved ones with intellectual disabilities. I'm a parent myself, and I always have questions. Our Parallel Paths is about creating a promising future for our adult family member with an intellectual disability and a promising future for ourselves as that role of parent, family member, caregiver evolves alongside them. There is more than one path, more than one future to talk about, and that's why we're here. Some remarkable people share their stories on our Parallel Paths, and I really hope that the stories and the wisdom resonate with you and give you ideas and hope for your future. So the person I'm speaking with today has been involved with my family for over a decade, and she has helped support us through some big life changes, including Nick's behavior issues in adolescence and the impact of the death of my first husband on my Nick, on his sister Courtney, and on me. Today's guest so often seems to be able to wade through my stories and my rants to come up with some really pointed bit of insight that I think about for weeks to come, including our topic for today, individuation, and asking what do I want and why that matters. So I'm honored and I'm excited to introduce you to today's guest, Melita Olson. Melita is an LCSW, a licensed clinical social worker and behavior specialist, a certified autism specialist, an advocate for persons with disabilities throughout the lifespan, and a mother of four. Melita is a senior director and co-founder of Spectra Support Services in Springfield, Pennsylvania. Hello, Melita. Hello, Jerry. Welcome, welcome. So I've been thinking about the term individuation, which is a word that came up when you and I were talking one day. And it is a word I've seen in several contexts. I think it's like Carl Jung terminology. Yeah. And you referred to this when you and I talked about Nick's and my adult relationship, perhaps one of over-attachment. And I came away realizing that I have just as much work, if not more work, than Nick does to help myself to be able to step back a little so that there are two adults and for Nick to be that adult and to take more risks, even if people have to tie my hands and watch while I'm doing it, while he's doing it, you know? And and for, for me to allow myself to like separate my own life from his and try to live my own life, even though I have to support and, and often monitor his. You said that I had to ask myself once in a while, what do you want? So Melita, why is that so hard? (laughs) Thanks, Jerry, and thanks for having me. Um, I think it begins, the why is it so hard really begins with the role that special needs parents have in their, in their, in the lives of their children. And, and, but I want to start with actually the context of what I think is a major shift that's happened in parenting in general. So when I do workshops, I sometimes use a slide and I wish I had, maybe I'll give you the slide. You can put it up on Facebook yeah. and it's this slide. It's a picture of helicopter parents. You know? <laughs> 
And, you know, that has been a major shift. And what people don't pay attention to, like, that's something people laugh at. You know, we don't want to be a helicopter parent or we are helicopter parents or there's all kinds of debate about whether that's healthy, um, of which I think it's not. Uh, but that's a whole nother, a whole nother podcast. But what I think is really relevant about it is the fact that there is this shift in what a good parent is. And so a good parent, you know, a generation ago, you know, the joke is always, you'll hear it on lots of podcasts and lots of books and people have written about it is we just, you know, we're out until the lights came on. And when the lights came on that we knew it was time to come home or, or things like that. Or I waited for mom and dad to yell for dinner because parenting was about just letting your kids go be with other kids and then mm-hmm. just being a support to them. But it was definitely not a rescue job. Yeah. And yet what has happened is in this generation, and this is not unique to special needs, it goes also to neurotypical um, families, is that we have this sense that we need to rescue our child from failure, our rescue, you know, our you know, classic metaphor or not metaphor, our classic situation where everybody gets a trophy, you know, we don't want them to <laughs> yeah. experience uh-huh. failure. No, heavens no. Right? Because if yeah. they have failure and bad feelings, then it's my fault. Mm-hmm. And there's that connection that has evolved in parenting over this last generation that any bad feelings that my child has or any failures that my child has or anything that my child goes through, if my child is anxious, it's my responsibility to avoid that happening. And so I think that what ends up happening, you know, obviously in, for special needs parents, you're so involved. We, I'm going to say we, cause I have kids with ADHD and autism and all that. So I'm just going to say, yeah. we, I'm going to own it. Welcome, <laughs> um, we, we, we just, we want to protect them from anxiety. We want to protect them from failure. And so we, we just got used to compensating for their, inefficiencies, compensating for their disabilities, compensating for whatever they can't do. And so our entire identity gets wrapped in theirs, right? Mm -hmm. Our identity is who am I for, in your case, for Nick, you Mm -hmm. know, I am Nick's mom. Like I actually, this is a funny story that will actually really point it out. So my, um, one of my children, uh, actually now works, uh, for Spectra and, um, he is in aid for, our day program. So he takes the individuals out into the community and there's this one young woman and she always knew my name because it's, you know, my business, I found it with my sister and she's always like, Hey, Melita, Hey, Melita, Hey, Melita. Well, then she got really close to my son mm-hmm. and then she just, now I'm my son's mom. I don't have an identity anymore. I'm my son's mom. Um, And it just reminds me of the fact that like as special needs, it's like our primary identity tends to be we're your Nick's mom or Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, my son's mom. And, and so, or my daughter's mom. And it's, and that's true of all moms that we kind of lose our identity in those, in those childbearing years. What differentiates it is that the childbearing or the launch is, is delayed or doesn't happen at all. So when you don't launch them into adulthood, you don't separate and, and, and recognize that they are meant to be launching also. Yes. The launch looks different, Mm -hmm but they still need to launch. And yet, the other thing I think about when you say that is that sometimes the idea of, okay, we have to separate and it might look different, sometimes it feels like it actually goes backward. You know, that that separating becomes 
kind of evaporates into something where I have to protect my child even now. And I kind of wonder about that as well, because it just sometimes feels like you retreat back into something where you're sort of like, oh, I'm supposed to be thinking about this and my child's supposed to be thinking about this. And yet sometimes it, it, it goes backward. Does that make sense? It does. But I think the I think the challenge is that in in when we launch when we launch a neurotypical child, in theory we're handing things over. So the first thing we do in adolescence is we hand over we don't want to probably, but we, mm-hmm. we do it or we could or should hand over influence about their values, influence about their thinking. That starts to get handed over to their peers. Yes. That's a piece that's missing in a lot of special needs kids because their peers don't always have that life-filling influence on them the same way they do for a neurotypical peer, especially not in adolescence. Like if it does happen, it tends to happen later. So the first thing is it's like part of what I think you're identifying is that parents have some comfort in backing out when they know who's coming in if that makes sense, for support. Yes. So the fact that you don't know who's coming in makes it that much harder to say, oh, I can step out. So for example, you know, my son's birthday's tomorrow. He's turning 23 tomorrow. And it's the very first year that he's, you know, I was going to stay back so I could take him out to dinner and, you know, spend Mm -hmm. it with him because the rest of the family is on vacation down the shore. And he's like, oh, sorry, mom, I'm spending it with my girlfriend. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's normal. Like, yeah, that's, yeah. that's what's supposed to happen. Like, and you're supposed you know, to go, oh, but then you're supposed then to be you're okay with it. You're supposed to be okay with it. And you're supposed to be like, okay, right. Yeah, I don't I don't have to make your birthday special at 23. That's uh-huh. that's your job to, yeah. to, you know. But I can feel comfort because it was handed over. So his girlfriend's fulfilling a role that I used to fill in this mm-hmm. case. And I think that's why there's this fear or anxiety, or I'm not sure you you can probably articulate the right word for it, that if I step out, who's filling that void? I think void's the right word. You're Mm -hmm. fearful of the void. If I step out, there's Mm -hmm. a void. And then that void's going to lead to some kind of bad outcome, some kind of catastrophic event, some kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. it's that fear that kind of sits in the back of our mind that it's our job to prevent that catastrophic event. Yeah. And I think, is it, is it because it may, may have a greater degree of that could happen than with a typical, you know, young adult? Yeah, I think so. But I also think it's part, it's that we haven't also like, we don't trust our special needs kids own agency enough. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like we we kind of, we think that whether we want to or not, even if we see them as adults on one hand, there's a part of us that always sees them as a child. Yes. And so as a child, they don't, they're not responsible for anything bad that happens to them, mm-hmm. except they are. Mm-hmm. Like they really are. Yeah, yeah. Even <laughs> you know, <back> then. <laughs> even even back then, you know, children are still a little bit responsible, and so you know, we have to recognize the fact that they are responsible, and it's not our fault if if bad things happen. I think that's what, it. All comes down to something that simple. Yeah. It's not our fault if bad things happen. That's number one. Number two, sometimes bad things happening is a good and healthy thing. 
Not always. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm mm -hmm. not talking about, you know, true catastrophe. I don't want someone mm -hmm. to be abused. I don't want someone to be, you know, injured and, and, and things like that. Sure. But risk taking mm -hmm. where there's lots of failure and there's lots, that is healthy. Yeah. I mean, I, I, there's a phrase I love that's a ship is safe in the harbor, but that's not what ships are for. Oh, I love it. Isn't that beautiful? It is beautiful. It just sort of says it, you know? Um, and so I think, I think that, you know, I think about my daughter's sort of individuation and separation. She like orchestrated it, you know, she <laughs> joined the Navy, she got married, you know, and Nick, Nick has been sort of doing it, I guess, and sort of doing it with, you know, Havre mother with him. Um, I'm really proud of this. We're sitting in Nick's condo um, where he and his bestie live. And it's, I thought about this when I bought this place after Al died. It was like someday someone's got to live here besides me. Like, this could be great for, you know, Courtney if she wanted to. But Nick, like, it's the safest place on earth. You know, it's got a pool. It's got lovely neighbors. It's, he, you know, it's funny. This When you talk about the, the catastrophe, like, I'm praying every time Nick crosses the street, even here. Like, you know, it's, you're going to get hit by a car because I've seen you cross the street. You know, but it's like, how do I not let him try? Yes. You know, and... When I've had him like walk all the way to the end of the compound to mail a letter. It sounds so simple, but it's all straight. There's no sidewalks. And so the first few times I did it, it was just silly. I was like 100 yards away, but I could see him. What I could do 100 yards away <laughs> was nothing, but I felt better, you know? Right. And I just like stay inside the yellow line, whatever. Um, it is such a shift. And I think that what helps me, nothing much helps me sometimes, but is to see, wow, he got back, you know? Yes. And maybe that horn that honked was somebody saying, get out of the way, but he I, got back, you know? And so it feels so incremental, but, you know, I want him to realize those moments too. And... Well, that's the piece that we forget. We forget that this, you know, individualizing that, that we want them to do creates more self-worth in them if they're dependent on someone else for their whole life that impacts how they feel about themselves i'm not good enough to make these decisions i'm not good enough to do these things and so we forget that in unintentionally yeah maybe we're protecting them from one thing you're you're you know we're in the harbor so we're protecting them from you know the hurricane out at sea but we didn't to your point we didn't let them learn that you know, there are big waves and guess what? They can survive. And yeah. then that gives them more confidence. And that's a confidence that can pervade other things. It's not just that one event that you let them do that they got successful at or that they learned how to pick up. I mean, one of the things I, I still remember, this is like, gosh, a long time ago, maybe 15 years ago when I was in a workshop and it, it happened to be, you know, I'm a clinical social worker. So it was a workshop about suicide. And one of the things that they made back then, and this is a good 15 years ago, and I just heard in a workshop recently that suicide is the number one killer of adolescents. It's just surpassed um, car accidents. And I only say that because Ooh. one of the main contributors, the only reason, I'm not trying to make a sad thing, but one no, of the main no. contributors to, to the suicide is that people don't know that failure is not forever. That kids, because they've been rescued and yeah. rescued and rescued, they no, think failure is forever. Yeah. They don't know that there's such a thing as failing, feeling awful, 
being demoralized, being whatever, and then there's something called recovery. Yeah. And without the experience, mm-hmm. you can't just tell them, without the experience of recovery from failure, your resiliency isn't built. And, and I remember, you know, I, I did, there's an actually actual study out there, and I, I love doing this in, in some of my workshops. I'll say to people, you know, what's the number one marker of success in higher education? And people always be like, oh, it's your, you know, your core academic skills, or it's your organizational skills, or it's, you know, they'll give all of the different reasons. Mm-hmm. The number one predictor of academic success? Resiliency. That's a word that I used on my daughter when she was in the little baby carrier and I went to a workshop. And I'll never forget that because the presenter, we all went around and I said, what is what you wish for your child? And when she came to me, I said, I wish her to be resilient because life is gonna knock her down and pick her up and knock her down and she needs to be resilient. And I've always wished that for her, as for her brother, as for her steps, their step siblings, everybody. Um, but that's, I, I love hearing that word because I think that that's it. And when you hear people not experiencing failure, so they don't know what it is. So when it does happen, it seems worse. And the message that we give them is that, oh my gosh, I don't want you to fail. We've yes. already told them yes. that this is the worst thing that could ever happen yes. to you and you'll never come out of it. Yes. Like, that wasn't my experience. No. You know, why am I telling <laughs> them? Why am I lying to my child? You know? <laughs> Yeah, but I think part of it goes back to that enculturation that we're responsible for their failures and we're responsible for their suffering, right? We're responsible somehow as parents, especially mothers, um, we have gotten this internalization in this generation that any suffering and any anything bad, any failures, any suffering, any pain, any anxiety that our children experience, we should have prevented. Somehow we were supposed to be these omniscient people that could see the world and imagine and, and see the, the, the pothole that they were going to step in, you know, and, mm-hmm. and prevent it from happening. And if, you, if any of us take the time to step back, we'll realize that that's, that's the subliminal message in our mm-hmm. parenting that we're supposed to do it so that when they do fail, we're like, what did I do? What did I, what did I do? Listen, to it. what did I do? What did I do? Yeah. Michael and I have said, like, when, when we grew up in the 70s or whatever, it's like, we weren't that interesting to our parents. No. No. It's like, no. yeah, we love you, but, you know, go play and come home when you're done. You know, exactly. I want you home at seven, get your butt in here at seven. And then it was like, yeah. we weren't that fascinating to them. Nope. You know, and we are, I think we have so much, I guess, so much invested in what it looks like to the world, you know. Yes. Um, and, but that doesn't show our children that they can never be wrong and that you survive. Right. You know, and that's typical, neurotypical. And then, you know, ramp it up, kick it up 10 notches to the disability angle where, you know, I have had families, you know, conversation about, oh, what's Nick doing or whatever. And I was like, well, he works in the community and he makes a pretty decent salary and they like him and he likes the job. And... You know, it's like, and then he's got staff in the afternoon until I'm whatever. And for some people, that's a very different path. And I think sometimes, even just like back in the day when a working mother and a stay-at-home mother, both who were working mothers, um, wouldn't really support each other's decisions. Remember back in those days of, you know, oh, I would never leave my child. You know, oh, Absolutely. All that stuff. I think it's kind of the same thing. 
and me sitting down with people and saying, oh yeah, and then Nick lives in my in my old condo with his friend, and then we have supports coming and going all day and whatever, and they're like, and I've had people say, I could never do that to my child. And it was just like, okay, don't, but like, why, your business, and why are you telling me that? You know, and then I internalize it and say, oh my God, I'm, you know, hanging him out to dry. And it's like, well, maybe, but how is, how is this ever going to work any other way? You know, how is it when I'm gone, is this young man, who might be an older man by then, hopefully, um, will be able to function at least somewhat without somebody hovering over them all the time? It's all I can do for him. It is. And, and I think you're pointing to a fact that it is occurring to me that, you know, Unfortunately, with the really tragic history of a couple of generations ago where where these individuals were just sent away mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you know out of sight out of mind, oh, yeah. then w- there's no model right there's no model for how to be this parent mm-hmm. you know what i mean there's no uh, there's no opportunity to we typically pass knowledge of this kind of thing down generation to generation, but there's no knowledge that's my next question <laughs> go for it go for it no that's that is so true because I was thinking about this. I mean, to interrupt you, but it was just like she's thinking in my mind. Um, I thought about you know parents just having different ideas about this from back from even what they were told in K twelve. You know, I was told how much we love Nick and I'm so worried about him and I've got a day program that I think you'd really enjoy. And it was like, well, that's cool, but that's not what we want. And it would keep coming up in the conversation. It was like, well, that's cool, but that's not what I want, you know? Um, And so the message at that point that, that, and I was a K-12 person, so I'm going to own that, you know, is is sort of like, this is who knows best. And this is what you should expect. And if you don't have the history, you may totally figure that's what, and, and there's no wrong answer. I think that there just needs to be an informed choice made. I'm not going to tell you that your your son or daughter shouldn't be in a day program, but I'm going to tell you, make sure that's your decision and not what's assumed by someone else, that that's what we do for them. Yes. That's the scary part. I think that is the scary part. And I think that, you know, it reminds me of this parenting magazine I read when my oldest was a baby, you know, when you're a new mom and you read everything in sight because you don't yeah. feel like you have any clue, which you don't, but that's part and of it, right? Then you get clues and, you and get you're clues. like, they're wrong. Um- so anyway, but I remember, this is so simple, but I remember reading this article that said, are you not letting your child make a mess because that mess is harmful to them or because you don't want to clean it up? Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, my God. Mm -hmm. You know, like, in other words, are you letting your kid, not obviously for real. I mean, they're talking about, you know, (laughs) food mess on the tray of the the high chair. Next room upstairs. (laughs) Um, But, you know, but but I think it, to me, it's also metaphorical. It's like, are you willing to let them make a mess because you may have to come in behind. That's been Mm -hmm. our role, right? Our role as parents is to come in behind. And then, so it's almost like, I think, I know for myself, I've been in this hyper control mode because like, well, that's too much work. So let me just prevent that thing from happening at all so that I don't have to support you in the mess that you doing what you think is right is going to do. But then I'm preventing you from learning, right? Mm -hmm. I'm doing it for me. I mean, I don't mean to do it for me, you know. Yeah, yeah. But 
I'm technically have, doing it for me. And you also have these other things going on. You know, Nick's disability is not the only item on my personal menu. No. You know, you have work. You have other children. You have your own health. You have your spouse. Like, we all... There's nobody who's, you know, dedicated solely to the welfare of the one person. You actually have other stuff going on. And it's okay for, I think, the, the Nick of the world to be, you know, all along the spectrum of number one right now, but number seven later on. And, number, yes. you know, and that that's okay too. Because I also think about the message I'm sending to my daughter, who will likely have a lot more to do with his life when I'm gone, um, and saying, yeah, he's the only thing that matters. He's the only thing you have to make sure. You have to make sure. I even think about, you know, when I'm telling telling tales when we're talking on the phone or something. It's like, well, you know, don't make this sound like, well, this is what you're going to have to deal with. It's like, no, you know, just just find that balance of, of honesty and and I'm just telling a story. You know, like not attached to, like, this is what I'm assuming for you. Yeah. Um, giving her that, that freedom to, to interpret it when she needs it later on um but you know my assumptions will generationally pass on i mean i was thinking my own mother were she alive today i don't know what she would have said about nick living here she would have been like but he's not going to be thankful (laughs) and i don't think she would have wanted courtney to leave home until she was married because that's that generation you know so you think about the generational pieces the cultural pieces of why people do say oh i could never do that well, I think you articulate one thing that I've noticed a lot because I do a lot of work with something called family navigation where I try to help families figure out, you know, what services are available in the adult system because it is, as you know, and that's a whole other podcast. It's a, <laughs> it's a service cliff, you know, or it feels like it that's at least. That's another episode we're going to be doing later on because I think it's so important. But I think that one of the things I've noticed the most is when you talk about especially um, – you know, my husband's older than me, so his his father is, you know, the Depression-era baby. He thinks we, we're blessed that he's still alive at mm-hmm. 90. He'll be 93 in a couple of weeks. But that generation uh, of whom now they're, you know, either becoming, they're passing or they're too sickly to take care of, of their generation was so ingrained not to depend on the government mm-hmm. and to that it was their responsibility like it's like you take care of your own yes you take care of your own but what we have to sort of start so we have to see how that interplays because sometimes for us that's underneath it it's like you're you're failing as a mother or as a parent whatever or caregiver if you don't to your point put every ounce into your your loved one and yet by doing that you're not allowing you know that that metaphor of it takes a village like you're being the village and and you're you're putting them in a really tenuous situation because you know and yourself you're living with that fear well what if something happens to me because you haven't built a solid foundation you really want to build a foundation that you can step out of so that the foundation isn't rocked mm-hmm. when you're not part of it and so even though we've been taught to so you know I sort of a martyr syndrome and I don't mean that as a disrespectful thing but it's mm-hmm. sort of like my job is to do complete and utter and total sacrifice in in yeah. service that's what we define love as I define love as complete and pure self-sacrifice yeah and that's what has I think has to get reevaluated loving is also allowing them to have other relationships loving is also allowing them to fail allowing them to risk allowing them to have a life different 
that doesn't need us, mm-hmm. that's a gift. And and we have to shift. It's a complete shifting. It's a, you have to, and the other part is you have to grieve it. Uh, that was something you and I talked about um, a couple months ago when, when we were chatting was, I think sometimes I know for me, like I've, I'm, I have my third, third kid that's going to college. So I have three kids in college in a month. And, uh, it's a lot of, uh, yeah, it's a whole nother topic for another day. But anyway, um, so I've got three kids in college and then I have a 12 year old at home, but as I'm kind of like getting in touch with the three kids going to college, I'm just like, what do I do? And, And I think because we hadn't had the opportunity to develop who we are separate, we don't know who we are and that's scary. And so it's just easier to just stay in the routine of what we always did because that fills the time but it's like if we don't then we have this time on our hands and what do i like i don't know i don't what remember do i don't remember right it's all yeah. you know it's all pre yeah. the it's birth the, that question you said like what do you want and i just sat there going dead air that's it there that's my dead, dead air um yeah and that it's not a selfish question mm-hmm. and it's not a it's just a question and it's not, it's a natural question. It's not, you know, I don't, it's just what you get to ask. But I think for myself, I've, I've shied away from the question because it's just easier to just keep filling, 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 filling. Cause if I fill the space, I don't have to deal mm-hmm. with that question. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Like yeah. it's, it's easier to put it all out there. It's, it's more of a challenge to ask yourself that question. And sometimes we're just too exhausted to take the challenge. Yeah, because this is, I mean, this is a layer of exhaustion that, you know, sometimes it feels like it's supposed to just sort of dissipate as our children move away from us physically or whatever, and that it's so prolonged. And I'm not getting any younger, you know? So it gets like, wow, wow, this is, who knew, you know? Um, so what... <sighs> What are thoughts on like, well, what do you do to sort of put that on your own plate and say, you know what, this is a good thing to to differentiate myself from this particular son or daughter um, to individuate, to create a a way to have boundaries that I can feel okay about. So I think there's two different levels. I think one is the fun. Like you, you really should you know, explore and just, you know, go back to things you used to do or, or try new things, you know, and just explore and see what you enjoy. And I think that's part of it. I think that, again, part of that parenting script is that we're not, you know, when we're self-sacrificing, we're not allowed to have, have our own enjoyment. And mm-hmm. that if we have our own enjoyment, we've somehow sacrificed something to the, yeah. to the other person, yeah. which which kind of reminds me of the metaphor you're talking about vacation. If yeah. I'm enjoying myself, I mean he was pro- he was probably more than enjoying oh, yeah. himself. But you're just like I I can't have joy and fulfillment separate. Yeah, listeners, this is embarrassing. Um, I uh, scheduled a vacation when Nick was away, which is at camp, which is really no big deal. But some of his favorite people were on that all of four day vacation, and. My sister was just teasing me about it this weekend. She goes, you were so guilty. You were feeling so guilty. Like your, His sister was going to be there and, and her husband and the baby and Aunt Gail that she loves, he loves so much. And it was like, oh my God, what have I done? And it was like, it took four days, you know, and it took me a little while to just be like, snap out of it. And it was, and it took me 
a long, it was just ridiculous. And I was kind of like, no, well, there'll be other four days. There'll be other, he's having a good time. I didn't leave him by the side of the road, you know? And it was a, this really awful, <laughs> good example of not being able to kind of separate it. It's like, well, if he has to be here. It's like, maybe next time. And that was like so simple. And yet I'm still wading through that. Like, what was I feeling so bad about? And I was like, well, I know what I was feeling bad about, but did I need to feel that way? No, you definitely didn't. And I think part of that is also, you know, more than we can get into here, but I think it's part of our, our doing our own emotional work to see where that comes from. So I know mm-hmm. for myself, you know, if there are times that, you know, in my own life that I was like, oh, I wish my parent had been here. or I wish my parent, if you had any of that sort of lacking, you know, mm-hmm. just one piece, it could be as simple as I wish my parents came to more of my concerts. or I wish my parents came mm-hmm. to more of my baseball games or whatever. Okay. When you have that, like, I wish my parent more, we tend to overcompensate and be afraid that, you know, we, it's almost like we have to be the omnipresent parent mm-hmm. to compensate for some, but that's us. That's about yeah. us. That's about something in us that somehow if I am that omnipresent parent, if I dedicate myself, that that's going to heal, you know, my sadness that, mm-hmm. you know, a few baseball games got, got missed okay. or something more extreme. If it's more extreme, if you really did have any kind of an upbringing where one or both of your caregivers or parents were not as present as you needed them to be or not as present as you wanted them to be, one of the coping strategies we do is to just become that omnipresent parent in and so sometimes it's about doing our own work to see what's underlying it because just saying you're going to shift it sometimes can shift it in your head but it doesn't shift it in your heart and it's really mm-hmm. going to it's really that heart shifting that mm-hmm. has to happen for you to really have the strength to to make the real difference because head shifting mm-hmm. is fleeting you know yeah. it's like it doesn't and that might not even happen <laughs> yeah so it's so head shifting is a good first start because you're like yeah. oh i need to go here but then you need to figure out if you get stuck why are you stuck right. you know like if you if you have this new concept oh i'm going to not feel guilty. You can't, guilt is not something you choose. Yeah. <laughs> guilt is something you feel. That's a heart thing, right? So you can't talk yourself out of guilt. You can't just shut it off with a mm-hmm. light switch. Mm-hmm. So you sometimes have to see, well, where is that coming from? Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's true, though. It's true. And, you know, now I'll have to think about that, too. And uh, actually, something came to me as I was listening to you. But anyway, that's a different podcast, too. Um, I guess... The, the, the question that I think about, as I say, the older I get, um, is how, what do we do with the fact that, I mean, I feel like I think about preparing for me not being here at all for some reason more than I used to. I never used to think about it much until, I mean, for one thing, I guess, he lost a parent when he was 16. You know, my children lost their dad. She was, my daughter was 19 and Nick was 16. And, you know, so there's like one down and when I'm gone, that's it, you know? And so how, where does all of this fit in? And what do you do with all of this when you realize that, you know, I, with any luck, my, both of my children will outlive me. How do, I don't know. I don't even know what that question is, but it's like, how does that make it harder? What do you think about? Um, which also leads me to think about siblings and what, you know, what to leave them. So I think you're articulating two 
different things. The oh, yeah. first, <laughs> it's okay. No worries. The first is just, and we'll start with that. Is just that impending. I hate to use the word, except that that's kind of how I feel people have expressed it to me. Doom. Mm-hmm. You know, this like this. It's like a it's a doomsday catastrophe that you're trying to avoid, which is I'm not here. And his life's going to fall apart. He's going to be subject to abuse. He's going to be subject Mm -hmm. to whatever. He's not going to have a place to live. Whatever those things are, because that person, you know, your loved one isn't independent, which is a whole other topic, too. I don't... So, actually, maybe it's not. Maybe it's relevant to right here. I don't think the goal is ever for them to be independent. It's to be interdependent. Inter, yeah. Yeah. You know, that's a big one um, that we've made it, finally made a shift for in the field. And I think that it's a good way as a a mom or a parent to think about it because if they're interdependent on a network of people and you've set people in their lives, whether it's a sibling, some siblings want nothing to do with them. Sure. That's okay. Yeah. You know, there are agencies out there where you can appoint a guardian you can appoint you know Mm -hmm. there's different ways to go about it so that there's i think what people are looking for is there always someone that's going to make sure they're safe and always someone that's Mm -hmm. going to make sure their best interests are at heart because they can't articulate it for themselves that's really what it all i think you take all that worry and all that catastrophizing it all boils down to two things one nobody's going to love them like i will no they won't that's okay because Nobody loves me like my mom, but when my mom passes away, I I mean, I have lots of people that love me now. So it's about building that network. The more you and your loved one are the only two people in the universe, the smaller that network is, you know? So it's about sort of shifting the the catastrophizing thoughts that are, first of all, they're going to be normal and just say like, normalize them. This is normal. Of course, I'm going to fear for that. That's a normal fear. That is an absolutely normal thing that I would fear for that. Okay. Now, what does it look like to work on it? What it looks like to work on it is just to continue building that network, continue to build the network of, of relationships that that person has. You know, I, I think about there's this um, one individual that, I've, that, that we've served for a long time, and then we, the person just moved to another residential provider. I'm guaranteed I'm going to be part of that person's life. I, I mean, I was a paid provider, but my personal relationship with that family is so in-depth that if something were to, I mean, I'm going to step in because there's just some unique things there that mm-hmm. I just, you know, I, I fight for that person. I fight for that person because I care that much. So you're... Without billable hours. Without so billable hours. <laughs> That's what we all want. But they're out there. People yeah. are out there that want to do that, but, mm-hmm. but the the smaller we make their world, the less opportunity we have to come in touch with those kind of people that are willing to do that and willing to be able to care about them. The you know, not us. They will never be us. And if that's what we're looking for, we'll be stuck because uh, that doesn't happen. But people that are going to care about them, you know, and it's okay if you're if the siblings don't want anything. I mean, it's sad. It's it's heartbreaking, but it happens. It happens a lot. As a matter of fact, statistically, if your child has autism, it happens way more like okay. it's way way more common for um the sibling of an autistic individual because they don't have social skills you know right. they're not the ones coming up and giving their siblings hugs mm-hmm. and so siblings find it difficult to feel right. connection sometimes and so they just they don't want that piece of it um it doesn't have to be a sibling it can be anybody it doesn't even have to be a family member or it can be a family member like i know for myself my my husband when i met him you might not even know the story Jer. um 
so when I met my husband, I found out that his mother, his oldest sister, had been institutionalized at the age of five mm. and had was now living in a group home. And I was like, oh, great, let's go see her. And, and my husband's like, no, oh. oh, no, we don't do that. Like, that was just part of the family culture. Okay. Um, we don't do that. We don't talk to her. That'll upset her. That'll make her feel worse. Like, it was just a mm-hmm. really, and it was so unsettling for me. Sure. But when that generation had um, passed away, they, you know, um, they passed I, I had someone come up to me and say, it's okay, you can do it now. And I went, I mean, I'm the, I'm the spouse. Like, you're I married like, into this you're family. But you're like, I, I'm like, bing, I'm, I'm there. And I went to every ISP meeting and I went to everything until she passed away at a really natural age in uh-huh, her 80s. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And I was like an advocate. My kids, we went there every Christmas. We brought her Christmas gifts. And, and that, was it so, did it upset her? Did it, you know I mean, was it no, something that no. you, and even if it was, Maybe there was a natural element of, yeah, I'm going to be upset. Who is this? What's going on? You're upset my world. And then you kind of say, I'm, I'm going to keep coming back. Yeah. And the person warms to it. And yes. you have this yes. you know, sad, happy ending. Yes. But here I am. My, my other point is like... I, like it doesn't have to be someone you know in your in your universe now. Yeah. Someone can step into your universe who's also going to care about them. That was my point. I mean, here I am stepping into this woman's universe. She was thirty years my senior. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And I, I became uh-huh. her big advocate. So the, so there's got there's room for that. You know, people are good. There are good people out there. And so we just have to keep building that network and believing that that part's going to happen. Yeah. And I guess also then being willing to give back into other people's networks too. Yeah. Because that that piece is to say, you know, everybody's, you know, this is my tribe, but I'm now part of your tribe too. And so I have some, maybe I may have some work to do too, but that's okay because it's all kind of building on itself. And that, I mean, that's a whole other podcast too, is like tapping into my own comfort and discomfort with that. You know, as a person who's kind of reserved, you know, can I do that? And it's like, go for it. Give it a shot. You know, just the yeah. same way that you're not allowed to fail. I'm not allowed to fail too. Like, what if I invite somebody and they don't come? Uh, world didn't end, you know? And so I guess we have to challenge ourselves too and step out of the roles that we gave ourselves and the roles that society gave us with our little helicopters. Um, But, ah, ah, (laughs) love this. Anything else that I skip anything that you'd want to add in? I just want, I think, I I think I just want to kind of round back to the whole idea of, you know, I wish it didn't, but I think there's two pieces is that guilt is such a driving force of motherhood these days. And again, mm-hmm. as, as we to, to kind of run back to where we started, it's not just mothers of special needs kids. It's, yeah. I think it's a, yes. a very pervasive it's... thing that it's like, we're not perfect. We're not doing it just right. And like, I, I think a couple of things that in my journey as a parent, it was like your parent, a you, couple things. First of all, I walk into workshops sometimes and uh, I do this workshop about the transition into adulthood um, for parents of children with autism Mm -hmm. or young adults, teens with autism. And one of the things I'll say to the group, I'll say, um, how many of your kids are really giving you a hard time and just will not comply with anything you want anymore? Mm -hmm. And of course, a whole bunch of people will raise their hands. I'm like, awesome. <laughs> and they're looking at me like, what are you talking about? I'm like, this That's is awesome. That's what they're supposed to be doing. That's kinda. what they're supposed to be yeah. doing. That's what adolescents do. Yeah. Because that's how they separate. Mm-hmm. I don't want you. You know, it's like, I don't want you, mom. I don't want you anymore. Hooray. Celebrate mm-hmm. it. Celebrate. And yet you go, 
after all I've done for you. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but so do us. So do uh-huh. our neurotypical. So, yes, That's what we yes, do. Yes. You know, it's like our, our, we have to let we have to launch them and then mm-hmm. hope they come back, right? Yeah, like yeah. it's just it's just. But if we don't not take it personally, <laughs> not take it personally. So that's Working my on one that. thing. Yeah, not take it personally. Like if they are conflicting and you are butting heads, then they are moving. Delayed all it be, they are moving through their adolescence, and that is really great. And one of the things we say on a more clinical way uh, to throw it in there is what people are trying to resolve at that, no matter who they are, is can I love you and still be mad at you? Mm -hmm. And can you love me? Can you be mad at me and still love me? And that's sort of the, the two things that we're trying to hold at the same time, because as children, we're very absolute. If you're mad at me, you must not love me. Mm -hmm. And we're trying we're trying to help people to embrace that you can be both you know one of my favorite things is somebody said you are going to disappoint your children constantly yeah and like, what them and i was like what yeah they're they're not gonna like you all the time what <laughs> you know and of course we, we, know, we, we know that's the truth yeah. but then when it happens we're like oh, i'm screwed up i've screwed up and it's like no this is this just, is just what happens this is just what happens yeah. it's just part of life and you think you didn't do it to your parents yeah exactly <laughs> i guess exactly so Except I just... that they weren't as interested <laughs> they weren't taking it as like this means i'm a bad human being Correct. And Yikes. so that's what I want people to, to work through is to, to just say, I don't have to be guilty. I don't have to be guilty. You know, I, I'm working with a family right now that's in the process of looking at an alternative arrangement, mostly because of the prompting of her children, because she has a physical health issue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's just, you know, her husband passed away. It's her and her son. And he's a 24 seven you know, care. And they're like, it's, you know, it's okay. It's okay to say, I can't do it anymore. It's not, but what's more important than it being okay. And you don't have to feel guilty to see it as a gift. Like one of the things I emphasize to people is, you know, if you can transition them to some kind of living arrangement without you, you don't want them to double up like one of the, in their grief. So we, we do workshops also on the, you know, top, stressors in life well one of them's a new job divorce is one right. uh, but what we, but the other two main ones are you know of course loss of a loved one mm-hmm. and moving yes, yes. right so yes. you don't want them to double up you don't want their whole world to change because they just lost you and now they just lost yes. where they're living yes that's not fair mm-hmm. it's just not fair to them because if that way you have some insight and you can help them transition you can be part of the transition because they're so dependent on you so if it's you and your Mm -hmm. loved one or you and a partner and your loved one or whoever is in your household placing them in some sort of living arrangement where they can get support without you before you're too sickly to help in that transition is critical. Mm -hmm. I cannot emphasize it enough. And it's a gift and it's a gift for you and a gift for them. But I think what happens is like, well, then I'm going to get to live my own life and, and yes. Yeah. And you deserve it. Oh, so much to think about. So much to think about. Uh, it's like, that's why you're here. Cause I knew you'd have all these these (laughs) things to put all together for us. And so uh, I hope we'll figure out another topic for you to weigh in on because I just have found myself found this really really powerful as I always do talking to you and so I want to thank you Melita for taking time to share all these insights and I want to thank our listeners as well thank you for coming with me on our parallel paths today and I hope 
that you will like and follow our podcast, tell your friends, tell other families, tell other sibs. And I really hope that you will come back and return to listen for more stories and wisdom from people like you and me and our loved ones with a disability on our parallel paths. We'll see you next time. 